Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Did you all notice the new sign when you came in this morning out front? We hit the big time, people. It's, it's, uh, there's no longer two tarps strung between poles out there. So it took us four years, but we made it. It was, it was, uh, it was encouraging to see uh, this week. And I uh, um, am just so thankful for the work that God continues to do in and through the life of, of the church. And I'm thankful that you're a part of it. I'm glad you're here this morning. So I, um, I want you to think for a moment about a time in your life, if, if, if you've experienced something like this, that you might call a transcendent moment. And what I mean by that is, is a moment when you felt like the truth of who God is became more evident or more personal. You experienced in, in a very personal way. Um, sometimes we might have experiences like this in the context of nature. I can just abject beauty sometimes just moves our heart and we get this clear picture of, of who God is and what he's done for us. Sometimes it happens in very personal, specific ways. I think for me, like one of the things that amazes me about God is when there's just a very specific need of my heart and God mobilizes somebody in his people to meet that need and it reminds me that he he knows every detail about me and he has all the resources available to do it and he loves me enough to to do something like that that's it's a transcendent moment maybe for you it's just corporate worship it's just gathering together in God's people and we come before his throne together and and you get this clearer, more um, accurate picture of who he is. One of the moments in my life when I've experienced something like this is, is each time I held one of my daughters for the very first time. And you're, just, you're in this moment when you've just witnessed a miracle to begin with. And that doctor just places this sweet little baby girl in your in your arms and yours, all this emotion because it's like, I just met this person for the very first time and yet I know I love them with this incredible degree of love, like different than I've loved anyone else. And in that moment, for me, every time that happened, there would just be this, this season when I, I captured the depth of God's love, his creative power and ability, just his general goodness and I had a clear picture of it as I held that child in my arms and my heart and that little labor and delivery room is just in this, this place of worship as I recognize all of this and who these is, who he is. Oftentimes when we have experiences like this, and, and if you've had a moment such as that, we'll sometimes talk about these or refer to these as mountaintop experiences, mountaintop moments transformative moments when the character of God or the purpose of God or, or merely just the proximity of God becomes more um, aware, we're more aware of it. It's revealed to us in this very unique and specific and personal and powerful ways. Maybe you're 
thinking of just such a moment right now. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking of how much you desire that, maybe how much you might need that right now. This morning, we're, we're going to look at, at another mountaintop experience. In fact, that phrase itself, mountaintop experience, actually finds its roots in various biblical narratives where God has an encounter with somebody. A, there's a transcendent experience, and it actually takes place on, on a mountain. When I was a youth pastor for years, I would take students to Ecuador. I've told stories about this many times, and they would talk about mountaintop experiences, why we were actually physically on top of, of a mountain. So we think of, of people like Noah. After the ark has come to rest on dry land and, and God meets him in that place and he makes a covenant with him, Moses has this transcendent experience with God. It's a mountaintop, it's a mountaintop experience. Or think about Abraham as he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac. And the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, is there and intervenes and provides a substitutionary sacrifice and, and meets Abraham in that moment. It's, it's a mountaintop experience. Or think about Moses as he's receiving the law of God on, on the edge of the mountain. He actually is glowing as a result of, of being in God's presence. Elijah, after he defeats the prophets of Baal, He's depleted and exhausted and demoralized, and, and God meets him on the side of a mountain to care for him and to reveal his love to him. Jesus' life, he's discipling his followers, and as he delivers the Sermon on the Mount, they're getting this clear picture of who he is and what his kingdom is all about. Or when his followers parade him into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the king, right? On the edge of the Mount of Olives. And of course, there's many, many more that we could look at. Transcendent moments when the veil is pulled back, God is seen more fully, and where his glory is revealed. And we're going to look at one of these, one such experience today. We, we think of it, or we know it most commonly, as the transfiguration. It's a moment that Peter, when he's writing to the church much later in his life, and the church is facing intense and life-threatening persecution, and Peter is, is communicating why it's worth enduring, why, why they should continue to persevere in, in view of this. And one of the reasons that he cites is this moment. Peter says, I have seen his glory. I know that he is ultimately the victorious king. And this is why we can persevere. So we're going to look in Mark chapter 9, picking it up in verse 2 here. And I'll read through this, and then we'll, we'll talk a bit about the presence of his glory, the significance of that, what, what this means, what's unfolding here. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them 
Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? That's a reference to a prophecy in the book of Malachi. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So I'm, I'm not, that last section about Elijah coming and what's going on, I'm not going to go into a lot about that today, other than to, to say, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew's account of the transfiguration, it indicates that the disciples understood that when Jesus was referring to Elijah in that prophecy, they understood that this was a reference to John the Baptist and what had unfolded there, what he had endured. So as we continue to work our way through Mark's Gospel, it's important for us to recognize that at this moment, there's a shift that begins to take place. The first eight chapters of this gospel, Mark has been primarily focused on helping us understand the identity of who Jesus is. And he's kind of been tracking the disciples' growing awareness of this, their growing understanding of it. But now in, in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, the shift that takes place is, is less about his identity, although that's always there, and more about his purpose. At this point in time in the gospel, Mark's um, direction starts to turn towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, and ultimately towards the resurrection. So last week when Mark chapter 8, if you remember from Peter's confession, when Jesus asked of him, who who do you say that I am? And Peter responds correctly and says, you're the Christ. He's absolutely right on identity, but when Jesus begins to say the Son of Man must suffer many things, Peter rebukes him. He gets identity, or he's getting it, but he doesn't yet understand purpose. And, And the truth of the matter is they really won't until after the resurrection. From this point forward, Mark is directing us towards what Jesus is doing, what he's going to accomplish, why he's going to to Jerusalem. And here in this encounter, it's understood through the revelation, the experience of his glory in the person of Jesus. So let's look at a couple things together today. First, let's consider the presence of his glory. The presence of of glory. Think about for a moment when you have experienced in somebody, in somebody that you know in relationship with, a moment when you have seen a side of them that's completely new to you. Jerry and I have a, a good friend who is just the kindest, most giving, compassionate uh, person you'll ever meet. 
She is gracious and just thoughtful and, and you just like sweet, 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 like that kind of person, you know? And, and that's how we have known her our entire lives. And, and after she had kids, she was still that same way unless there was something that she felt like was a threat to one of her kids, even if it was mild. And I remember the first time that, that we saw her sort of intervene, step in on behalf of one of her kids, and there was this whole mama bear side of, of who she was. I was like, well, that's, that's new. Like, we, we hadn't seen it before, and you, and you kind of liked it. Like, you're like, okay. Like, you think about this for a moment. The disciples, they, they have this growing, unfolding understanding of who Jesus is. But now in this encounter on the side of a mountain, they witness his uninhibited, unfiltered glory. It's the glory of God on Jesus, in Jesus, and it's something that they've never seen before. Jesus takes Peter and James and John, and he takes them up the side of a mountain. And Matthew's gospel records that they've gone up here to pray together. So this is not something that is out of the ordinary for Jesus and his disciples. They do this frequently. But in this encounter, it says, and he was transfigured before them. That's the Greek word metamorpho. It's obviously where we get our word, English word metamorphosis. It literally means to change form. Jesus changed form. So if, if the incarnation, if Jesus taking on flesh was the willingness of God to take on the limitations of humanity, in this moment the disciples are experiencing something where that is being set aside so that the full deity, the full aspect of the fact that he is God is on display. It's being revealed. And his disciples are there. They're watching it. They're, they're seeing it. So if you think about uh, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul's describing the incarnation, he writes it this way in verses 6 and 7. He says, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. So this is explaining the miracle of the incarnation. What Jesus has done in allowing himself to to carry the presence and the limitations of human flesh, being born, uh, uh, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, here in this moment, this is the, the sort of the reverse of this. It displays his form in the fullness of God. And in verse 3 it says, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. You know, every, every time that you see in the Old Testament or the New Testament some human effort to define or describe the glory of God, like, words always fail. Like, here their effort is, like, Jesus is just so radiant, and they're trying to think, like, how can we describe this to people? And they're like, well, it's like, it's like bleaching your clothes, but, but way beyond that. Like, you just sense, like, Words can't describe what they're experiencing. The Apostle John, who's there in this moment, he recounts this as well when he's talking about Jesus taking on flesh, becoming one of us. This is John 1.14. He says, The Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, that's going to come in later, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This encounter in this moment, it's an encounter with the glory of God, which brings us then to the problem of glory. So we have this, the presence of glory is here, but that presents a, a problem. We think about, think about um, you know, the presence of someone can, can be good or bad depending on the circumstances. Right? When I was a kid, and some of you will be able to relate to this, um, there was this cruel practice that the schools uh, did where when you got a report card, you had to take it home and have your parents sign it and, and bring it back. Um, so either you became really good at forging your parents' signature or you had to have a transparent moment with your family. And, and so when I came home with my report card, the presence of my parents was good or it was bad depending on what was on that report card, right? See, the problem with the presence of God's glory is that for these disciples, they understand the significance of that. In fact, if you look back here in, in Mark, we, we capture this. Verse 4, he says, There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they're talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But look at verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And, and rightly so. And I'll, I'll be brief on this point, but it's important to understand the significance of what Peter and James and John are witnessing here. And why it is terrifying to them. Because in a Hebrew mind, in a Jewish understanding of the presence of, of God's glory, or sometimes referred to, you may have heard it referred to as his Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of God's holy presence is both awe-inspiring and terrifying. For example, and, and Moses is, is noted here, he shows up on the scene, but when Moses had his encounter with God in Exodus chapter 33, if you'll remember that, he's there on the side of the mountain. God is giving him the law for the people. And Moses requests, let me see your glory. And God answers him. No one, no one can see my face and live. See, here's the problem is that we, we can trace this all the way back into the book of Genesis, into the story of creation. The story begins with humanity dwelling in the presence, the unfiltered, unadulterated presence of the holy God, and there's no fear, and there's no shame, and there's no hiding. It's uninhibited relationship with the Creator. It's, it's what you and I are designed for. It's, it's why we experience a longing in the absence of that relationship. But in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the picture, and when sin enters the picture, so does separation, because God is holy, and we are not. Humanity is not. And so his presence in that moment goes from this perfect relational unity to a consuming fire. It goes from invitation to fear. Peter, James, and John, in this moment, they are appropriately afraid because they understand that, 
that without the presence of a mediator, without somebody to stand in between them and God's glory, that they would be undone. They could not stand in the presence of the glory of God without somebody mediating on their behalf. And then to intensify the situation, here on the side of this mountain, a cloud overtakes them, and from this cloud, you hear the voice of God come out. This, again, if you grew up memorizing the Torah and hearing all this, your mind is immediately pulled back to these moments when God showed up with the people of Israel or Moses' moment on the side of a mountain. You understand the significance of what's unfolding here. In Matthew, in his gospel, he says they just fell on their faces. They fell on their faces because they're in the presence of God's glory and they know they know how vulnerable they are. They know what that means. Which leads us then to the purpose of his glory. The obvious question as we think about this, as we think and understand and we consider the problem of the glory is then how is it that Peter and James and John are in the presence of God and yet they remain alive? And then why are Moses and Elijah showing up on the scene? And why does Peter recommend that, that he starts to build some tents for everybody. See, the question of the thing that we have to recognize is when we see the presence of his glory and we understand the problem of it, is how do we bridge the gap between the glory of his presence and us? If you've ever been in a relationship or experienced a moment where you know people are in and really like lock down, drag out conflict with each other. And maybe you've tried to step into the midst of that conflict to see if you can find common ground for a way for these relationships to be restored. If, you've in the, if you're in counseling or, or something like that, sometimes in, in the context of a marriage or parent to child, somebody serves as the role as the mediator. How can I bridge the gap between where this person is at and where this person is at? See, Peter, James, and John, they, they don't understand, they don't capture the significance of the transfiguration and all that it is unveiling about the purpose of Jesus until after the resurrection. They don't understand that in this moment, Jesus is being revealed as the one who is both the full glory of God on display and also the one who is our mediator. Two things here. There's some, there's some debate regarding why Peter suggests the building of, of, of tents. Um, some sense that Peter's thought is, is once he recognizes that, that Jesus is the mediator, is that he wants to stay there, that he wants to continue this, that the awe-inspiring nature of this is he wants to remain. I think what is, is more likely is that this is Peter's effort to, to bridge the gap, to set up a tabernacle. Just as the Israelites did when, when God's glory descended on Mount Sinai and, and Moses received the law of God, they, they set up a tabernacle, a system that would allow for mediation. It's what he knows. It's what Peter has been taught from the time he was a child. It's temples and priests and, and sacrifices and rituals. 
The second thing is, is the presence of Moses and Elijah here. Both of whom, as we've already mentioned, by the way, had very personal, powerful encounters with the presence of God. But what was different in their encounters and what Peter and James and John experienced is that they were receiving a reflection of God's glory. So think of it about the difference between seeing like a very bright full moon that is reflecting the sun, right? That's why we see that. So the difference between seeing that and looking directly into the sun. In the Jewish mind, Moses and Elijah are the, the representation of the law and the prophets. See, in this moment, in other words, everything that they had told the people, everything that they had taught, everything about the law, everything that the prophets pointed to and told us to anticipate, in this moment we discover that it's all been leading here. It's all been leading to the person and the purpose of Jesus. In fact, in, in Luke's gospel, here in Mark, we just know that, that uh, Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. In Luke's gospel, there's a bit more of the content of this conversation. This is from Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. It says, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of the departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, they're talking about his sacrifice. They're talking about where he would go for here, how he would accomplish ultimately this work of mediation on our behalf. So the entire Old Testament, all of the law and the prophets has been pointing to what Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus is, is both the full glory of God, the all-consuming glory of God and he is our mediator he is as the voice of God declares from the sound the beloved son the beloved son of God who bridges the gap between God himself and us as humanity Timothy Keller in his commentary on on Mark's gospel it's entitled um, Jesus the King and it's it's an excellent resource but he writes this, he says, Jesus is able to give what Elijah couldn't give, what Moses couldn't give, what no one else could deliver. Jesus is the temple and the tabernacle to end all temples and tabernacles because he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifice, the ultimate priest to point the way for all priests. This entire encounter, everything that unfolds here is intended to reveal the glory of God in the person of Jesus. And this is the fourth thing we see here. Jesus is revealed as the person of glory. Jesus is revealed as the person of glory. Again, in verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is both a statement of identity, as we've been talking about throughout this gospel, and it is a direction for followers of Jesus. The instruction to the disciples in this moment and everything that they've experienced directs them entirely to Jesus and the instruction to listen to him. In fact, this is, this is at the heart of what it means to call ourselves followers of Jesus. 
to live as a disciple. And so as they leave the mountainside, as they begin to return, Jesus instructs James and John and Peter not to tell anyone what they've experienced here. He says, until after the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And they still have no idea what that means. In fact, it, it notes they're still, why is he talking this way? Why, why does he say things like this? But what we do know from John's gospel and John 1.14, from Peter's letters to the church, is that this moment, this transcendent mountaintop experience, would be one of the things that informs and empowers what it meant for them to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. Particularly when they viewed it in light of, of the resurrection. And see, the thing about transcendent sort of mountaintop experiences that, that we may have in our own lives and our own stories and moments when God breaks through in powerful ways, if you're anything like me, you, you want to stay there. You want to remain there. You want that to continue to go on. I've told this story before, but when I was a, um, a young, inexperienced youth pastor, I had taken over a role where the person before me was sort of like legendary, right? Word of the wise, don't do that. Um, and there was all this sort of like understanding. I was finding my way there was conflict between myself and some of the adult leaders that had spent years following uh, this previous youth pastor, and, and it was just difficult. We were at this conference out in uh, Baltimore at John Hoskins University. There's hundreds of students there. I probably had a group of 30 or 40 kids, and I am just in the midst of a struggle and trying to figure this out and feeling like I'm in over my head and I didn't know what to do. And this conference, they created time in the morning for the students just to have a, a personal devotional time. And so kids are scattered out across the lawn. I've got my Bible and my devotional book, and I'm there just trying to, to spend time. And my heart is just, it's hurting, and I'm praying, and I'm confused, and I'm overwhelmed, and all this sort of thing. I'm just there having this moment with God. And, and, and I, and this is a one and only time in my life, but in that moment, I heard the audible voice of God speak into my heart and say to me in that moment, Sterling, I love you. I love you. And I, I, I know, you know, this can sound on the verge of crazy, but there was, no, there was no doubt in my mind what I was hearing in that moment. Like, and to the point where when it happened, like I was undone. Like I just began to weep, literally. So there's, again, picture this. There's Hundreds of students all around. You're supposed to be the guy in charge. And I am, you know, they're looking at me like, well, he's, he finally snapped. You know, like he's, and, and kids are walking around and then the devotional time is, is wrapping up. And I remember this sense in that moment, oh, I just want to, I want to stay here in this. I don't want to leave. I just, I heard the voice of God reminds me, and this is what I needed more than anything else. This is what was directing my path. You see, I love you, and I wanted to stay there, but that's not the purpose. Jesus descends from the side of the mountain with his disciples. Why? Because he's making his way to Jerusalem. When we see God's glory, when he gives us a clearer, fuller picture of who he is, when we perceive the person of glory, 
The intent behind that is to continue to live and fulfill everything that he has asked of us. We don't stay there, but we return to the work of what he's done. When we were in Ecuador with the students and and so many of their stories, you will hear them tell about God meeting them in, in personal and powerful ways on some of these trips. But when you're literally physically on the side of a mountain, there's this opportunity there to say life isn't, isn't lived in the mountain. It's, we can't stay here. But when you return to the valley in order to do the work that God has given you to do. The disciples, they, they descend the mountain with Jesus. And when Jesus returns, he turns his eyes towards Jerusalem. Because his purpose is not yet fulfilled. It's not yet finished. It but it is revealed in his glory. And you hear the voice of God say, this is my beloved son. Church, listen to him. Listen to him. You know, one of the reasons that we, throughout history, celebrate communion and that we come to the Lord's table is to create a moment, a time to remember and, and to come back to a transcendent experience of God's glory. A, transform, a transformative moment in the life of the church. And so I want to just take some time this morning to, to bring us back to the Lord's table. And if you didn't grab one of these on the way in, would you just raise your hand if you'd like one this morning? And our ushers will walk around. We have some in back there. They will pass these out to you. Um, and, and I just want to give you a moment to process um, perhaps your own experience maybe the moment when you first realized who Jesus is and what he's done for you when the the significance of the cross and the power of the resurrection became clear to you do you allow yourself to remember that in this moment when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room he took something as they celebrated Passover that was incredibly familiar to them they understood its meaning and it's significant, but he handed it to them and, and he said something they had never heard before. He said, this is my body given for you. And as he handed it to him, he instructed them, as you eat this, remember me. This is the body of Christ that was given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And Jesus took the cup. He said this cup is it's the cup of the promise. And they knew that. They had celebrated Passover every year of their entire lives. But this time he said this is the promise of a new covenant. It's blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. As you take this cup, be reminded of his promise for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink in remembrance of him. Thank you, Jesus.